Please remain standing and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. First Peter 5, verses 6 through 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that, at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's turn now to our sermon text, Zephaniah chapter 3. And this is four books before the end of the Old Testament, four books before Matthew. Zephaniah chapter 3. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate, without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off, according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For at that time, I will change the speech of the people's to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. 
from beyond the rivers of Cush. My worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, where they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord God, your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like you to think about two words. Shameless and unashamed. So if you break those two words down into their kind of component parts, it seems like they ought to have basically the same meaning, right? Shameless, no shame. Unashamed, no shame, right? And yet we usually use those words in very different ways, don't we? So shameless uh, has kind of a negative connotation. Someone's shameless, it means they're unembarrassed about something that they really should be embarrassed about, right? Uh, There's openly flaunting something that's obviously wrong, and yet they're pretending like there's nothing wrong with it. That's being shameless. They have no shame, we would say. Um, Unashamed, we usually use for something very different. There's overlap, of course. They They can be interchangeable, but this is generally the way we use them. So being unashamed, generally, is a positive thing. It's the word we use, for example, when when somebody does the right thing, even though they know it's unpopular. Or more generally, uh, we could say it's when someone that you might expect to feel ashamed doesn't feel ashamed after all 
because they have a very good reason not to be, despite other people's expectations, despite the way things seem. Well, Zephaniah chapter 3 gives us two pictures of Jerusalem, of the covenant people more generally. This is a contrast that O'Palmer Robertson helped me to see here. Um, in the first section, Jerusalem is filled with the shameless. People who are shameless. In the second section, it's filled with people who are unashamed. And the difference could not be greater. People who are unashamed because of the sovereign love of their mighty Savior God. So that's what Zephaniah 3 is about. And we're going to look at this chapter in three parts. First one we're going to call Judgment on Jerusalem and the Nations, verses 1 through 8. Then verses 9 to 13 are going to be Salvation for the Nations and Jerusalem. Um, and then third will be a final message of hope, verses 14 to 20. So judgment on Jerusalem and the nations, salvation for the nations and Jerusalem, and then a final message of hope. All right, now in, in chapter 2, uh, Zephaniah's purpose was, there was to give hope to the humble in the land of Judah. And what he wanted to do was to picture for them God's judgment on the enemy nations surrounding Judah to the west, the east, the north, and the south. Um, But, of course, we're not to think that Judah itself is going to be immune from that judgment that's coming on the nations. Chapter 1 spoke about a worldwide judgment impacting the whole earth, Judah and Jerusalem included. And so when chapter 3 begins, woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city, well, that's speaking about Jerusalem. And why this message of woe against Jerusalem? Well, because the people of Jerusalem won't listen. They will not listen. They are stubborn. They accept No correction. You don't don't want to be a kind of person who will not accept correction. And they refuse to do what chapter 2 said was the only way to escape the coming judgment. She does not draw near to her God. Remember, people were supposed to seek the Lord. That was the key to escaping the judgment. These people will not draw near to their God. So verses 3 to 5 draw a contrast um, between the leaders of Jerusalem, uh, both political and spiritual. So it goes through the officials, the prophets, and the priests. Uh, It draws a contrast between their injustice, their treachery, their lawlessness on the one hand, and then on the other hand, the Lord's perfect justice, perfect righteousness, perfect faithfulness. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. And there it is. The leaders of Jerusalem are not just wicked. It is that they are shameless about it. They're brazen. They're arrogant. They're acting like nothing is wrong. The more that God warns Jerusalem, the more he tells them, look, here's the way to avoid judgment. Just listen to me. Just accept correction. Have some reverence for who God is, for what he's saying that he's about to do. The more he warns them, the more they reject him. Verse 7, but all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. And so the consequence is that the judgment that God pronounced against the whole world in chapter 1 and against the surrounding nations in chapter 2 
is now coming to focus on Jerusalem itself, which is going to be condemned along with those other nations. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. And Judah, then, is not going to get a pass just because they're Judah. Jerusalem is going to be consumed by that same wrath of God that's going to come against the rest of the world. Why? Because the people there have rejected everything that makes them different from the other nations. It's true, they're supposed to be different. They're supposed to be distinct and separate. But instead, they've become just like the rest of the world. They've rejected that covenant holiness, that set-apartness. And so that means they're going to be condemned along with the rest of the world. However, that is not the only possible outcome for every individual within Judah and Jerusalem. There is another way that leads to another outcome, not to condemnation, but to salvation. What's very striking, beginning in verse 9, though, is that that way of salvation is not going to be open just to the people of Judah, is it? It's going to be a way of salvation for the world, for the nations. Just as the judgment is going to be worldwide, encompassing Jerusalem as well, so is the salvation. For at that time, God says, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Okay, so can you think of another time in the Bible where the Lord changes the speech of the peoples? And I hope you're thinking of Genesis chapter 11, Tower of Babel, where the whole world at that time was united with one language, united in arrogance against God, trying to build their tower up to heaven. So what did God do? He confused their languages. He changed their languages in a negative way, confused the languages so that they would scatter, so that they'd be dispersed across the face of the earth. Notice what's happening here is the opposite. Their language is being changed in a positive way that's going to unite them But now they're not united in rebellion against God. Now they're going to be united in serving God with one accord, calling on the name of the Lord together. I think this is a big aspect, by the way, of what was happening on the day of Pentecost. As people from all over the Roman Empire were each hearing the gospel proclaimed to them in their own native language. It's a picture of that curse of Babel running in reverse. So instead of being confused and scattered because of their rebellion, these people of many languages were being united around the one gospel that was for all of them, a worldwide salvation, extending as far as the judgment, far as the curse is found, he comes to make his blessings flow. Look at verse 10 where it says, from beyond the rivers of Cush. Now remember in chapter 2, Cush represented the southward direction, and it was also the furthest away. Cush is way down in, uh, east, in uh, east Africa, south of Egypt even. 
But just as God's judgment is going to reach that far, God's salvation is going to reach even beyond it. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed one, shall bring my offering. And there, the wording seems to be referring to exiled Jews being regathered from distant places of their exile. But then when you combine that with verse 9, what it, what it seems to be showing is that that regathering of the scattered uh, people of Israel is part of a broader movement that also involves the gathering in of the nations, of the Gentile nations too. <clears throat> At any rate, um, it's important to see in what follows that just like Jerusalem was not going to be exempt from the judgment coming on the whole world, Jerusalem also is not going to be exempt from this worldwide salvation, at least some of the people in it. It's Jerusalem itself that God is uh, going to show most clearly his power to save, to save these people within Judah, these specific, the specific group of people, the people who are going to humble themselves and seek him. That's what makes the difference. So I will remove from your midst, verse 11 says, your proudly exultant ones. So those are the arrogant, shameless leaders from verses 3 to 5, right? They're going to be gone. The judgment is going to get rid of them. Who's going to be left? Who's going to be left is the humble and lowly. These people are going to seek refuge in the name of the Lord. And these people who are going to be left in Israel are going to do no injustice. They're going to speak no lies. This is this faithful remnant we've spoken about so many times. The faithful remnant that's going to stay loyal to the Lord. They're not like the shameless rebels. And because they are not shameless, look at what God promises them. They are going to be unashamed. They're going to be unashamed. The shameless leaders are going to be put to shame, but the humble, lowly refuge seekers are going to be the opposite. They're going to be protected. They're going to be nurtured. They're going to be kept safe. They shall graze and lie down. Verse 13 winds up. And none shall make them afraid. This is the kind of picture of, of peace and safety and protection that you get in a place like Psalm 23, where the Lord is our good shepherd, makes us lie down um, in green pastures. He leads us by the still waters, restores our souls. You could say that the faithful remnant is about to walk through the valley of the shadow of death along with the rest of the nation through the Babylonian captivity. So the Lord is reassuring them that as they walk through that valley, they can say in faith, I will fear no evil, for you are with me and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Earlier we read from 1 Peter chapter 5, where it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Why? Is it so that you can kind of cower, some kind of fearful, guilty, kind of shrinking away from God, from his anger, from his displeasure? No, that's not the kind of humbling is talking about. We humble ourselves under God's hand, trusting that at the proper time, he will exalt you. He will lift you up. You cast all your cares on him because you trust that he cares for you. And after you've suffered a little while, Peter says, he doesn't give any illusions that it's going to be this easy, painless Christian life where nothing bad ever happens. You don't have to, ever have to experience anything hard. 
But he does say that afterwards, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself confirm, restore, strengthen, and establish you. That is what Zephaniah is promising here to the faithful remnant of Judah in his time. Those who are seeking refuge in the name of the Lord. They're the ones who are going to be left, who are going to be preserved, who are going to be kept safe, provided for, and lifted up, exalted by God, when all the proud and unrepentant ones are humbled and swept away in the judgment. Now, as we come to the last few verses here, it's kind of like Zephaniah, the composer, has written in this, this great crescendo to this final coda at the end of his three-movement symphony here. It's this triumphant celebration of what life is going to be like for God's people at the end of the story. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem, because the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He's cleared away your enemies. I want you to notice how God-centered this last section is. This is all about who God is and what God has done, what God is going to do. See, God's people can have this hope, not because they're going to somehow do something heroic and great for God, but because God is in their midst. And that is why they will never again fear evil. So what is this God like? Well, he's a mighty savior. Verse 17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. It's not just God's might, though. Not just that mighty ability to save that's so reassuring here. More than that, it is the sovereign love of God that Zephaniah is expressing, that, it, that assures these humbled people that that, that, that might is going to be brought to bear for their protection and not for their destruction. What an amazing picture when Zephaniah says he will rejoice over you with gladness. Can you imagine God doing that? Rejoicing over you with gladness and quieting you with his love and exulting over you with loud singing. It could be translated a, a ringing cry. We're going to see it tonight in Psalm 61, that same word, that ringing cry. Um, there it's going to be an expression of grief. It's like that sound, the kind of sound that if you don't know the context, you can't really tell if the person is happy, very, very happy, or very, very anguished and sad. It's just that cry. That's the kind of cry that God is exulting over his people with. This is not the Lord begrudgingly saying, okay, well, I really wanted to wipe you out. But you humbled yourself last minute, so I guess I won't do it after all. Isn't that some, sometimes how we think about God? As though his salvation is somehow reluctant, that it's kind of a last resort or something he, he wishes he could punish us, but he doesn't because Christ has stepped in. That is not the biblical way to think about the character of God or his disposition towards you as his people. It's not an angry father being placated by a loving son. It is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who from all eternity has set his love upon you. And that is your only hope. That is the only reason that you were rescued from the judgment because this love has been lavished upon you. He is not reluctant. He is not stingy about this saving love. You just look here and keep this 
imagery in your mind of God lavishing this love on people who clearly do not deserve it. This is on the city of Jerusalem and the people of Judah, of all people, people who deserve the judgment that is coming. They have not earned this love. Remember that wonderful statement of Martin Luther when he says, the love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. He is able, the hymn says, mighty. Okay, I get that God is mighty. I know that he's able, but he's also equally able to judge me, right? So how can I know that he'll do one and not the other? Then the hymn says it again. He is able. You think, well, yes, I know, but, but why would he do it for me? But it says it one more time. He is able. You think, yes, I know that he's able. God can do anything, but I feel so ashamed of my sin. I feel so undeserving. But then it says, he is willing. Doubt no more. And that's what Zephaniah is showing us here, that God is not just mighty enough to save us. He will save us because he loves us, because he treasures us, because he's, he's welcoming us with open arms and exulting joyfully with this ringing cry of welcome and celebration over people who don't deserve it, but he has chosen to set us, his love upon us to people who don't deserve it. And out of that love, because of that sovereign love of God, look at what God is going to do. He says, I'm going to deal with your oppressors. You don't have to worry about them. I'm going to deal with them. I'm going to save the lame and gather the outcasts. I'm going to change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. He's going to transform all of the, all the tragedy and all the shamefulness of defeat and exile that's about to come on Judah. He's going to transform all that into the opposite. Bringing you in, gathering you together, making you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. See, this is what God does for sinners. This is what he does. He takes our guilt. He takes our undeserving. He takes our helplessness and our shame. And he intervenes by his sovereign power and love. And he does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And what Zephaniah promised to the faithful remnant of Judah in his day, it's all the clearer for us today, isn't it? As we were looking back, we can see in hindsight, not just... Um, the immediate fulfillment of these promises, Judah returning from exile, Judah rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the city walls, being restored and protected again among their surrounding enemies. Those are good things. They're partial fulfillments. but They really don't rise fully to the level of the kind of glory and elation that these last verses are describing. But I'll tell you what does. I'll tell you what does. How has the Lord taken away the judgments against you? He's done it through the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, your King, the Lord who is in your midst, God with us, the Mighty One who will save. That's the Lord Jesus, whose name, His very name means He saves. The Mighty God who will save you. That's who Jesus is, who is among us. And it's Jesus who even now is rejoicing over his church with gladness, exulting over us with loud singing from his heavenly throne. That's the kind of love that the Lord Jesus has for you from heaven at this moment. We are gathering to approach him 
He's calling us into his presence, gathering us here. That is what he is doing in heaven towards us. And this love that he has for us is not a begrudging, stingy kind of, okay, I guess I'll forgive you since you asked kind of love. It is a warm and joyful and open and full and free welcome. Because he has cleansed away all of your guilt. He's taken away all of your shame by bearing them for you on the cross. It's the whole point of the work of Christ. Now is he going to treat you any differently now than he did when he was living and suffering and dying for you? So there's nothing you could do to earn that kind of love from him. But by trusting in it, by resting in that love of Jesus and in his death for you, you can receive that love. You can receive it as a free gift, an open and empty hand. And you can rest in that security and and the joy of that love, knowing that he will never take it away. That's what he's promising you here in his word. I told you earlier that there's a big difference between being shameless and being unashamed. And if you are shameless, you have that pride in your heart, you love your sin, you're holding on to it, you're saying, I'm going to do things my way, you're stubborn, unwilling to accept correction, then there's not much that I can do for you. There's not much comfort that I can offer to you from the prophet Zephaniah. In fact, all I can really give to you is the warning of verses 1 through 8, which is not good news. But if you will humble yourself, if you will seek refuge in Jesus... If you will say, I I don't deserve anything. All I have is my shameful sin and guilt. But I am resting in Jesus. I'm resting in what he did for me. I'm resting in his promise of forgiveness. Well then, you have this promise. That the Lord Jesus is the mighty one who will save you. And that in him, you can be unashamed. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the promises of this passage. We pray that you would please help us to embrace them in faith and to live out of them. Now, as we take the Lord's Supper, today as we go from here into the rest of this day of rest you've given us, and throughout the life that you've called us to as your beloved people. In Jesus' name, amen.